The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. TV repair? Okay, freeze! I'm holding a 65-pound TV. What do you think I'm gonna do, Mambo? Okay, put up your hands! And, and uh, put down the TV! Can I do it in the other order, man? Because if I do it in the way you say, you're not gonna like what happened to your set. You know what I mean! Okay, to unfreeze? Back on the stand. Back on the stand. Oye, me déjame decirte algo. I am not your maid. I put the TV back on the stand. The next thing, you're going to have me rearranging chairs. If I feel like it, yeah. I hate homeowners with guns. It really takes the fun out of my work, you know? Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, August 22nd, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Don't own a gun, never have. But I do think that I have a right to own a gun. I'll explain why right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. And of course, freedom has always depended very much on the existence of weapons and guns. In the wake of another round of gun incidents and mass shootings, both in Canada and the United States recently, the issue of gun control and prohibition has inevitably raised its irrational refrain. Yet another one of those issues in which facts, or reason, do not appear to matter. U.S. President Donald Trump, however, has made matters worse. When, after the shootings in El Paso and Dayton, he cast aspersion on the effect of video games and proposed what are called red flag laws as a means of preventing mass shootings by identifying, in advance, people who might commit such crimes as a result of mental illness or other such behaviors. And here in Canada, on the same weekend as the American shootings, the city of Toronto apparently reported more than a dozen separate shootings, some more serious than others, and generally blamed on gang violence. We'll be touching on all of these circumstances as our show progresses. But first, I'll explain why I believe that I, and every one of you for that matter, has a right to own a gun. Then we'll back up and offer the evidence that supports these conclusions. Now, the reason I believe that I have a right to own a gun is because I do. This right is derived from the right to life, meaning my own right to my own life, and is a derivative of that right. We call this the right to self-defense in usual you know, conversation, and to the extent that I own virtually any weapon for that purpose, it is my right to do so. But the moment I use my weapon of self-defense offensively, that is, by initiating violence against another individual, my right to own the offensive weapon used gives those who were aggressed against 
the right to deprive me of my weapon and perhaps even deprive me of my own life. Because guess what? They have the same right to self-defense as I do. And through the exercise of that right lies our very equality before and under the law. It's fundamental. But after every mass shooting, and even after some simple one-on-one shootings, the gun control and prohibition advocates come gunning for guns. It's not my intention to use that phrase as just a play on words, even though it's a pretty good play on words, gunning for guns, because as ironic as irony would have it, gun control requires guns. Can I say that again? Gun control requires guns. So the question is not about banning or controlling guns in themselves, is it? The real question is, who gets to control the guns? Or better still, how can you control the guns? Well, to answer the second question first, how to control the guns, most people inclined to do so end up turning to government to do the job, which leads us to yet another irony in this debate. Recognizing that government itself is a gun. Which brings us back to the first question again. Who gets to control the gun of government? Voila! Politics enters the fray. And with it, more irrationality, more avoidance of reality and reason, and more pandering to an ignorant public, ignorant by virtue of the fact that the debate is so constructed as to keep everyone ignorant of the facts. This is what bothers me about this whole thing. And remember, I'm not a gun owner. I'm just looking at the facts, and I can see them with my eyes, and I hear them when I hear people give their arguments, and there's nothing there to refute. This from the National Post, August 8, 2019, by Michelle Quiggy of the Canadian Press. Toronto Mayor calls for more federal help. Gun violence. Toronto Mayor John Tory said he hopes to meet with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in the coming weeks to reiterate a call for a handgun ban and appeal for more financial support to help stem the tide of violence. A call for a handgun ban also came from Ontario's official opposition. New Democrat Deputy Leader Sarah Singh said the party will continue to push for laws that would allow municipalities to bar handguns within their borders, describing such measures as a key part of any effort to combat gun crime. And then this one from August 10th in the National Post. Headline reads, Street Gangs Linked to Rash of Toronto Shootings. Street gangs are largely to blame for Toronto's recent spate of shootings, the city's police chief said Friday as he called for help addressing the problem. Chief Mark Saunders said a multifaceted approach is needed to tackle the gang issue in the city where the vast majority of shootings occur consistently in the same neighborhoods year after year. Police said there have been 22 people injured in 20 shootings over the past seven days, including five hurt at a nightclub shooting over the long weekend. The force recorded 259 shootings with 392 victims as of Sunday night. Shootings have been on the rise in Toronto, according to police data. 111 shootings and 139 victims were recorded at the same time of year in 2014. Chief Saunders also defended his force's work on gun violence and blamed the justice system for allowing those charged with firearm offenses out on bail, suggesting that was contributing to the problem. 
There are currently 326 people out on bail on gun-related offenses, Saunders said, adding that about 90% of those charged with such offenses make bail. End quote. To carry on this conversation, here's CKTB AM 610's Tom McConnell in conversation with Brian Lilly of the Toronto Sun from Tom's August 12th show following the publication of Brian Lilly's column, Real Policies to Deal with Gun Crimes. Well, this is cropped up over the holiday weekend and the following days in Toronto. This is not solely a Toronto problem. We've had gun violence in this city. I know they've had gun violence in uh, London. Maybe not to the same extent we've seen in Toronto, but this is a problem that's gone on now in Canada for a while. What's the problem with the handgun ban? The problem with the handgun ban is that it won't take the guns away from the people causing the problems. It'll take the guns away from my friends who like to go to the range on the weekend. What we need is something to deal with our gun crime problem. Uh, The key part in that is the crime part, not the gun part. If you just deal with the gun but not the crime, well, then you're, you're targeting the wrong side. What we have are people that are in violation of about half a dozen laws already. They're carrying around illegal guns, mostly smuggled in from the United States. They're smuggled into Canada. They're sold at uh, huge, huge markups, you know, bought for a couple hundred dollars, sold for a few thousand dollars on this side of the border. And then they're already in violation of possession laws, safe storage laws, transportation laws, uh, careless firearms use laws. And suddenly we say, well, that gun's banned. It was already illegal. (laughs) I was saying it's banned, going to make them stop when they could already be facing 10 years or more in jail. It makes no sense, not until we are actually prosecuting people fully and properly, rather than, as we've just found out, and I've heard this not just from the chief of police in Toronto, but from police chiefs across the country, we stop having the revolving door of bail for people committing violent crimes, especially violent crimes with firearms. Two of the people charged in the recent uh, spate of gun violence were out on bail. Sam Pisano, great crime and courts reporter for the Toronto Sun, went and looked at what was going on. And he details three different people that were all up on violent gun crimes, past convictions. The guy gets two years less a day for a 2017 walking around with a prohibited handgun that was loaded at the time. If I'm transporting guns to the range down at Silverdale in the Niagara region, they've got to be unloaded. They can't be loaded. Ammunition and gun in separate cases, you know, all these rules. This guy's walking around with a loaded pistol that he is not allowed to own, and he gets two years less a day. While he's out on probation, he's picked up on more gun charges. He's allowed out on bail. That's part of the issue that we've got to deal with. If you are committing crimes with a gun, an illegal gun, you should not be getting bail, especially not when you're on your second, third, fourth go-round. And that's what police, including Police Chief Mark Saunders, are talking about. But I've heard that from police forces, uh, officers high and low across the country. 70 days approximately to the federal election. And as you are well aware this is probably somehow going to become an election issue, or is it? Because does it play outside of the GTA that well? Are people across the country, is this an issue in Edmonton? Is this an issue in Halifax? Or is this just sort of the issue du jour in Toronto, which is already, you know, vote heavy for the Liberals anyway? 
A bit of column A, bit of column B. Okay. So uh, we have seen an uptick, and I was even looking after the, the premier made some comments about Chicago and their gun violence. I hadn't looked at Chicago's numbers in a while. They instituted a handgun ban in 1982. Guess what? The murder rate went up. All through the 80s and 90s, the murder rate went up. In the early 2000s, it started to drop. The handgun ban they had was ruled unconstitutional. Uh, you were in, in 2010. In 2013, they said, oh, you can even do concealed carry in Chicago if you're carrying a legal gun. And the numbers didn't go up for murders until about 2016, or, or handgun crime. That is about, I'm sorry for that buzzing. Uh, so 2016, we started to see an uptick in gun violence in communities across North America. That coincides with the bursting open of the opioid crisis. You talk to police officers and they will tell you that opioids are incredibly lucrative, that people are arming themselves to the teeth to protect their turf, to protect their stash. That is a lot of what's going on. So, you know, to go back to the issue of the handgun ban, how does that stop the guy that's selling opioids from shooting to protect his stash? It doesn't. But here's what they're hoping to do. They're hoping to hit up, because this happens in St. Catharines, in London, in Ottawa, in Toronto, in Edmonton, in Calgary. All these places are dealing with this. What they're hoping is that they can scare enough suburban moms to say, but I just want you to do something. And I get that instinct. I want you to do something. This is a problem. But if you do the wrong thing, you're not going to get a good result. One of the things that's also interesting is that the Harper government brought in mandatory minimum sentences, and they were ruled unconstitutional. And one of the cases involved a guy flashing a gun on social media or during some online chat in his own home. And I'm like, all right, I have no problem with you owning a gun to your situation of you have friends or maybe even yourself go out to sports shoot or you want to go to the range. Okay. But I think you rightly point out, it's when you get in public. There is no need for you to have a loaded handgun in public, yet why are we continually so soft? That's the situation where I think everyone should be in agreement on that's the problem here. What they tend to do is go after the easy to deal with cases. It's easier to go after people that are going to obey the law than it is to go after people that are going to flaunt the law no matter what. I mean, the government's own report from April, where Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said to his Minister for Organized Crime Reduction and Border Security, go out and study a, gu a gun ban. And his uh, conclusion at the end said that there's nothing to show that banning handguns will improve public safety. In the case that you're talking about, so there were two guys and their cases were conjoined at the Supreme Court. They're identified as N and C. Okay. C was the guy who was brandishing an illegal handgun, an illegal loaded handgun in pictures on social media. And the cops went around and was like, hey, buddy, come on, you can't be doing this. You're in violation. He gets arrested. He's facing a three-year mandatory minimum. Yeah. That's thrown out, and mandatory minimum is deemed unconstitutional. In the case of N, this is a guy who was hanging outside a North Toronto community center, and he's looking a little shifty. And the cops go over to approach him, and he starts running, so they chase after him. As he's running away, he throws away a loaded handgun that was illegal to own in Canada, had a magazine that was illegal in Canada, had a bullet in the chamber, and he had the gun down the back of his pants hanging outside the community center. 
he's not someone that is unknown to police, and we're going to say that it, it's unconstitutional to lock the guy up? We have a problem. I don't know how going after guys that go to the gun range on the weekend stops guys like this from hanging outside community centers with guns that are loaded. People that are legal licensed gun owners that make mistakes, honest mistakes, can face jail time of 10 years. And they're threatened with that. And yet this guy is getting two years less a day when he's got 22 different charges. We have to take people like that out of society and lock them up. We need to protect the innocent. You know, I have mixed feelings about that conversation. And it, there, there seems to be some confusion with the term gun crime and with the term gun violence. And I think there were too many generalities made without a clear context of exactly what they were talking about. Now, I agree that if we're actually talking about violence, like murder or actually shooting at people, that if guns are involved, they're relevant to the crime. And there is justification for denying such criminals their right to possess a weapon. But too often during the conversation between Tom and Brian, the only quote-unquote crime related to the gun, at least according to the way their conversation sounded, appeared to be in the illegal possession of the weapon, not in its use in a robbery, assault, or shooting, or murder. And that's a big difference. Quote, carrying around illegal guns, end quote, says Lily. Quote, violation of possession laws, safe storage, etc., end quote. Well, none of these gun crimes, quote-unquote, relate to violence, so I'm hoping that these conversations relate strictly to gun crime as being gun violence, violence initiated against someone else and not in self-defense, but that wasn't what I was hearing as a consistency. Yet, Lily refers to someone, quote, walking around with a prohibited handgun that was loaded at the time, end quote, that he's not allowed to own. This is not a crime of violence. Unless you're talking about a person who had previously committed a crime of violence, and we know what that crime was, then you might have a case for this. But without an act of violence involved, the idea of quote-unquote illegal guns is an oxymoronic concept. It turns an object into the source of the crime and avoids the broader behavior of the owner of that object. You know, it's no different with video games, which will be coming up later in the show, blaming a game for the behavior of someone who's played that game. So I've become somewhat concerned that perhaps much of what's being called a gun crime is the mere act or owning or possessing of a gun. And I don't consider that a gun crime. There's no need for a loaded handgun in public, says Tom. Well, how does he arrive at that conclusion? I don't know. On what grounds can he make that kind of absolute conclusion? What if the person with the loaded handgun in public is in fear of his or her life by someone else who's using a gun as a weapon, or even is just capable of overpowering them otherwise? So the irony of this conversation is that the idea of possessing a gun for self-defense is not even a consideration. You know, guns are just for playing with, is their way of framing the issue. It's okay to own at home. It's okay to shoot at targets. You know, it's okay to shoot at the range on the weekend. But these are not the justifications for being able to own a gun. That's ridiculous. Those are just extra added benefits of owning a gun. You can make a sport of it. Yes, I get that. But given a proper context, I would agree with Lily's broader principle 
deal with the crime part of the problem, not the gun part of the problem. I just wish it was more clear in their conversation that that's what they were doing. Yet, with citing of statistics that relate to handgun bans in Chicago, it seems clear that periods of banning guns correlate to periods of increased gun violence, and that makes perfect sense. I've consistently found this to be the case over the many years I've revisited this issue, and yet no one brings it up except the few people who seem to understand the issue. As to the issue of guns becoming a political issue in Canada's upcoming federal election, well, Robert Vaughn and I were in Gatineau, Quebec this past weekend attending the People's Party of Canada's first national convention, by the way, an amazing event about which you'll hear more in the future. But definitely, they think that guns will be an issue in the next election. I recall among the specific questions the party dealt with during their workshops was this one. Quote, gun violence, including hate-motivated mass shootings, such as the Christ Search Mosque shooting, seem to be occurring more frequently. Most recently, a nationwide manhunt for two triple homicide suspects crippled the nation in fear. How does your party plan to address the issue of gun violence in Canada, and what's your response to municipal leaders such as Toronto Mayor John Tory calling for a nationwide handgun ban, end quote. So yes, gun control will be an issue, especially if there's a political party in the ring that actually believes in a different approach from the policies shared by the Liberals, NDP, Greens, and Conservatives. With the PPC in the ring, you can pretty well bet that gun control will be an issue. Sashi Curl, executive director of the Angus Reid Institute, voiced her partisan opinion in, in an August 12th London Free Press editorial under the headline, Real Action on Handguns Might Help Trudeau Unite Voters. So there's more evidence that the handgun issue is going to be an election issue. Get this, she cites the New Zealand mass shootings last April. She cites the northern BC shootings of a young couple there. She cites, quote, the murder of 14 young women guilty of nothing more than studying engineering in Montreal's École Polytechnique in 1989, and concludes, quote, in my mind, very little has changed about the fundamentals of the gun control debate in the ensuing decades. Well, you know, to, if these are the kinds of events that are still staying in your mind and you, are your justification for wanting gun control today, man, you just have not moved on. This is not causing the big problem that people think it is. She writes, quote, I don't understand why people need guns for purposes beyond hunting, sport, or if they live in remote areas where a call to 911 is no guarantee of immediate help. End quote. Well, the irony of this, of course, is that you can live in a big city, too, and call 911 and still have no guarantee of immediate help, a scenario that has arisen with increasing frequency. We hear about it all the time. So what is she talking about? You have to live out in some remote area before you can you know, own a gun? When someone like this says they don't understand why people need guns for purposes beyond hunting, they are admitting that they have not researched the facts, the philosophy, or the reality behind the issue of guns, and their right to self-defense. Now, as an executive director of the Angus Reid Institute, I would have imagined that it's Sashi Curl's responsibility to know why people need guns, at least why they say they do, identify those reasons, and then speak out specifically against those reasons if she still feels that those reasons are not valid. I don't hear that argument. Her self-admitted lack of understanding, I don't understand why, does not constitute any grounds for imposing 
policies based on her ignorance on others. Because that's what we're dealing with here. So right now, our attention turns to south of the Canadian border, where during the same weekend of the shootings highlighted in Toronto, two mass shootings made the news there. Blame hate, not guns, says U.S. President. Trump reacts to mass shootings with a call for death penalty, but little on limiting access to firearms. Read the headlines in the August 6th National Post, written by Roberta Rampton and Susan Heavey from the Washington Post. And I think this is more of an editorial than the news item, but it's presented as news. Quote, U.S. President Donald Trump on Monday proposed tighter monitoring of the Internet, mental health reform, and wider use of the death penalty in response to mass slayings over the weekend that killed 31 people in Texas and Ohio. The man arrested at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, reportedly had racist motives, and Trump said Americans must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. Trump did not directly address accusations that his own anti-immigrant and racially charged comments have contributed to a rise in race tensions. These sinister ideologies must be defeated, he said in remarks at the White House. Hate has no place in America. Hatred warps the mind, ravages the heart, and devours the soul. Democrats quickly accused Trump of hiding behind talk of mental health reform and the role of social media instead of committing to tighter gun laws to address gun violence in the United States. Another gunman in downtown Dayton, Ohio, killed nine people, including his own sister. Dozens also were wounded in the attacks. Trump also said the country needs to reform mental health laws to identify disturbed people, as well as work with social media companies to detect possible mass shooters. Mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger, not the gun, he said. That comment drew criticism with Democratic presidential candidate Amy Klobuchar accusing the president of trying to dodge the issue of of gun control. There's mental illness and hate throughout the world, but the U.S. stands alone with a high rate of gun violence, she said on Twitter. Trump's speech included no real call for gun restrictions or even background checks. Trump could have blamed both lax gun laws and mental health. Instead, he chose to suggest it wasn't guns that were the problem. Trump also said on Monday that it was time to stop glorifying violence in society and pointed to gruesome and grisly video games. Democrats who have long pushed for greater gun control, said Trump was indirectly to blame for the attack in Texas, with some drawing connections between his rhetoric and a resurgence in nationalism and xenophobic sentiment, end quote. Wow. Talk about an opinion piece masquerading as a news story. You might as well blame the Second Amendment and the founders of the United States for the shooting, (laughs) which some people do, of course. What's remarkable about all of the rhetoric calling for gun control is an absolute avoidance of the other side of the issue. A conversation that now begins on this side of our upcoming bumper with a discussion between Bill Whittle and Scott Ott during their YouTube discussion of August 6th and on the return side of our bumper with some comments made by Stephen Crowder and the rageaholic Daniel Harris. In the wake of this weekend's shootings in El Paso, Texas, and in Dayton, Ohio, that claimed the lives of some uh, 30 people, uh, President Trump made a statement uh, condemning 
violence, condemning racism, condemning hatred, um, and also implicating violent video games, um, and by extension, violent movies, although he didn't, ex he didn't explicitly mention movies. Uh, this is Bill Whittle now. I'm Scott Ott, and Bill, um, the president made this statement that nobody really expected him to make. He didn't bring up the thing that everybody talks about after one of these mass shootings, uh, but he did talk about keeping uh, mentally ill people, what, what they call red flag laws to, to take guns out of the hands of mentally ill people who might be a danger to themselves and to others. Um, first of all, what do you just think of the president's general approach to this moment, this uh, fraught and uh, the, the moment when the whole country is grieving and he comes out with a statement that kind of runs against what everybody would expect? In other words, he didn't come out and say that we should get rid of guns. 50, 60 years ago, when I was born, let's say, in 1959. Guns were everywhere. Every single kid had toy guns. They had guns that would assemble into different guns, and you could put a bipod on that and make it into a machine gun and all the rest of it. I've never seen those kids before. Neither have I. Bang, 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 bang. Kapow, kapow. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if they moved next door to you? <laughs> You could buy real guns in Sears, in Pennies, in any department store, in any hardware store. You started with a BB gun when you were uh, seven, eight, nine, and if you took care of that and you didn't shoot anybody's eye out, then maybe you got a 22 and so on. Ever since the time I was born, it has been harder and harder and harder and harder and harder to get guns. The availability of guns has not increased over the last 60 years. The availability of guns has dramatically decreased, and the perception of guns in our society has also dramatically de decreased. Every high school used to have a shooting team. Kids used to, wear their, used to wear their six shooters on their hips when they just go out playing in the yard. You could have gone in 1965, you could have gone to a Sears store and you could have bought as many guns as you could carry out of the store. So one thing we know is that the is that the difficulty of getting guns is getting more and more difficult as time goes on and the shootings are increasing as well which tells me that it's not the guns so the availability of guns and the restrictions on guns has caused the number of shootings to go up i don't think that's a causality but i'll tell you what i do think is a causality i agree with the president to to a to a degree without question some of this video game violence and some of this um, let's call it violence porn in movies like The Matrix tend to desensitize people to these kind of things and when you're talking about your seven eight sigmas out on the on the far end of the bell curve that might be enough to nudge people slightly but I want to be crystal clear on this if I thought that anything that a movie or a video game or a president said actually caused somebody to go out and start gunning down innocent people, then I would think that people are simply robots who are determined by whatever the last input they happen to get is, and I don't believe that at all. The person who's responsible for the shooting is the person that did the shooting. There were no mass shootings prior to Johnson administration, none that I, not since the Old West anyway. And even then, the OK Corral gunfight, which was four people killed, made such a splash that it just went down in history for the rest of time. 
Johnson administration, one mass shooting at the University of Texas. Nobody during Nixon's two terms, no one during uh, Ford, no one during Carter, three during Reagan, something like five or six during Clinton, seven or eight for Bush, 24 for Obama. And none of that has anything to do with the presidents or anything else. What it has to do with is it has to do with this instantaneous celebrity for people who are suicidal in the first place. And this is the part of it that nobody talks about. And if you don't understand this, you will never understand any of it. Nobody goes into those situations, the shooters now. None of them go into that situation planning to murder a bunch of people, then get out in a getaway car driven by a friend and make a run for it. Every single one of them is expecting to, and most of them do, go down in a blaze of gunfire, which means it is a suicide act is what it is. It's an act of suicide. It's suicide by cop. But if CNN is going to be there and you're going to get yourself killed by cops, why not get your face on every single TV screen and your name as well? If you're bitter and resentful and angry and suicidal, I'm not saying that's not a problem. That's, that's needless to say, that's a very serious problem. But but you are handing people who feel anonymous, who feel worthless, who feel like they don't exist. You are handing them international celebrity and fame by doing this. And it's not me saying this, it, although it makes perfect sense to me. This is what the people who study mass shooters say. But nobody's going to deal with that. No one's going to address that. Because if you did address that, you would have to start to address the fact that the main thing that has changed in this country in the last 60 years is there are far fewer people going to church, there are far fewer people in intact families, there are far fewer people with good fathers, and that's the thing that nobody wants to talk about. So if you want to make it about Trump, be careful, you know, like I said, seven, eight, nine, and then Obama, 24, I think it was during his eight years in term, be careful about that. And now, my buddy, old Scott Ott, now we have finally arrived at the main vein. 22 people killed in a shooting like this is probably a weekend in America's inner cities, at least that many. 22, 25 black men killed every single weekend in America, but they don't count. And the reason they don't count is because they're not a threat to liberals. You see, that's why they don't count. They don't count because they're not a threat to liberals. The reason that this kind of thing is so upsetting to liberals is because this kind of murder could touch them. And that's when they start to freak out. But as far as having 8,000 black Americans murdered every year in this country, in inner cities that have been run by Democrats for a century, that's not even on the radar. Nobody's even talking about that because those people, don't, they don't matter to the Democrats. They're not useful to them politically. Talk, talk about fake news. Talk, talk about fake news. I mean, I was amazed. I watched CNN for six hours in the morning after the Dayton, Ohio shooting. And we certainly knew a lot more about the Dayton, Ohio shooter. You know, a self-avowed extremist socialist, Elizabeth Warren supporter, hated Republicans. Uh, whereas the other guy from El Paso, uh, yeah, seemed like a racist, white supremacist, sure. Seems like he may have liked Donald Trump. But he also quoted the Lorax. He also was a neo-environmentalist who thought we were over-harvesting resources. So if you, I'm just talking about if you're looking at a consistency of a worldview as to the reasoning for, for killing people senselessly uh, in some of the worst tragedies, tragedies we've seen in recent memory. Um, 
The Dayton shooter is one that's pretty clear, but CNN, for our sake, we don't know enough yet. We don't know anything about the shooter. No, we did. And you know what else we know? We know that video games don't cause shootings. I'm really disappointed to see this, to see Republicans trot this out, because you know what? This is how we lose. This is how conservatives lose, and rightfully so. And I've seen some people out there say, you know what? I really liked Trump until now. We see these red flag laws, and... Uh, you know when you have the Republicans and Donald Trump echoing uh, violent video games? And I can't refute that. I have, no, I have no retort to that. You know what? All I can say is, yeah. Yeah, I hear you. It's a really crappy thing to say and a crappy thing to do. To go out here and blame video games... I mean, who are you, Tipper Gore? What are we... Are you Bill Clinton, are we going back to Columbine now? We know there's no correlation between the two. No! What they paint is a gun epidemic. And it's not. It's not an epidemic. This is also something that bothers me. It, it, it pulls away from the issue that we really should be talking about. You know, the United States doesn't lead the world in violent crime. Not even close. Doesn't lead the industrialized world in violent crime. Not even close. Doesn't lead the world in gun crime. Not even close. Doesn't lead the industrialized world in mass shootings either. None of those things are true. But guess what? It's really hard for people like me and you to go out and make those arguments when unfortunately we're put on the defensive because people for some reason think that we're proxies or representatives of the Republican Party. I know I'm not. I am a conservative. I'm open about it. I don't cop out and just say libertarian or independent because I don't like labels. No, I'm fine with the label conservative. That being said, I'm not a proxy for Donald Trump by any means. But it removes our attention and our ability to cut through the bullshit when we have to address that, no, no, of course I don't agree with President on, on the video games. No, of course I, no, that's not the issue. I don't even want to have to deal with it. And you know what? Republicans, conservatives, if you are even remotely consistent in your ideology, you wouldn't put people in that kind of a position. Another election season, another shooting we pretend is an everyday occurrence rather than an outlier. Like cringy clockwork, it's time to play the video game blame game. What does it say about our society that our default position after any given tragedy is to blame semi-automatics or Super Mario? I mean, where would American political discourse be without inanimate objects to blame for our failings? Guns were only made to kill people. Fun fact, the overwhelming majority of ammunition in America and elsewhere is fired into targets. Unless paper was emancipated while I was busy playing Dig Dug, the only way shooting paper is murder is if you're aiming at Kira Knightley's chest. Friendly reminder that the last time we had a major talk about censoring the vidya in Congress, it came not from Trump, but from none other than Joe Biden. Meaning, between Biden's video game censorship panels in 2013 and Trump's tangent this past week, it's time to officially accept it. Blaming Super Metroid for mass shootings ain't a Republican thing. It ain't a Democrat thing. It is a boomer thing. And if social security, ska music, and The View have taught us anything, it's that boomers were a mistake. Trump's turned tarred in the interim, offering up red flag laws, which many states already have, including the two the shootings took place in, as an unconstitutional compromise. Did James Madison stutter? Shall not be infringed. And don't give me that well-regulated militia 
we call that a subordinate clause, meaning an interjectory phrase that contributes to, but does not alter the core meaning of, the sentence in which it appears. Meaning you could excise the entire militia aside from the Second Amendment and not lose an ounce of its original import. More to the point, peep the Federalist Papers while you're at it. Nothing the Black Scary Rifle Corporation could produce in 2019 would give these cats a case of the vapors. I mean, have you looked up a cannonball injury? Let me ask you something. Can an AR-15 liquefy a sternum at 40 paces? Can it perform a legectomy from across a battlefield? Can it blow a human skull in a sopping wet watermelon chunks? Cannons can, and they let us have those. So much for your musket myth. Don't like it? Think it's anachronistic? So Stonehenge, there's lots of countries that hate firearms, preferring instead the odd truck apiece massacre. Neat! You can go live in them, because the United States didn't merely allow, but was largely formed by pivotal advancements in musketry at the turn of the century in which they were formed. I mean, the Second Amendment isn't optional. It's not something you just slap the reset button on. It's a core value that informed the very founding of this republic, and indeed allowed it to exist at all, which is why it's one of the few amendments that isn't vaguely worded. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. I have to hand it to rageaholic Daniel Harris for nailing the Second Amendment argument, which at its philosophical core is all about an individual's and a nation's right to self-defense, isn't it? Remember, any government governed by the consent of the governed cannot possess rights that are not possessed by its citizens. If I as an individual citizen don't have a right to own a weapon, then neither does the government that represents my rights. As soon as that contradiction is permitted to exist, you're already on the road to statism where governments assume authority above their citizens and all individual rights are defined and granted by governments. The rest is just a matter of time and of continued complacency on the part of the governed. I can also personally relate to the observations of Bill Whittle about a past where guns were commonplace and accessible, but where the idea of repeated mass shootings was virtually unknown. Everything he said about this was absolutely true. Kids even took their father's guns to a class in school from time to time for show and tell, or for some other teaching experience about being responsible with guns. And I also have to give Stephen Crowder a hand for his criticism of Trump's reactionary speech to the shootings. These events have finally pushed Trump into making statements with which I strongly disagree, but which have not caused me to stop considering him to be the best president in my lifetime, as I've stated on the show a few times in the past. But Trump has put people like me in a difficult position, having to reconcile these particular comments with his otherwise very good record relating to other issues in the past. Quote, President is dead wrong on death penalty, read the headline over Andrew Cohen's August 8th editorial that was printed in the London Free Press. And I agree. Quote, America kills more people through the death penalty than any other democracy. Canada abolished capital punishment in 1976, and opposition to the death penalty has gained traction here in the last two decades. On capital punishment, unlike other issues, Trump is consistent. As a private citizen, he notoriously took out a newspaper ad calling for the death penalty for the Central Park Five, Latino and black teenagers who were falsely accused of raping a woman in New York in the 1990s. All were acquitted, but Trump never apologized or recanted. 
He doesn't care that since 1972, 164 people on death row have been exonerated, according to the ACLU, a stunning indictment of the death penalty. That's why 21 states have abandoned the death penalty, while most of the other 29 states are reluctant to use it. None of that matters to Trump. He doesn't believe overwhelming evidence that the death penalty is not a deterrent. This is about pleasing his loyalists, end quote. Well, that's a funny conclusion. Ironically, I heard a majority of commentators argue or observe that Trump is appealing to his opponents in making such statements, given that they've made many of the same statements in the past, right? But when it comes to the death penalty, I'm not opposed to it out of some sympathy or consideration for a truly evil individual who may have terrorized or murdered other individuals. So I was somewhat surprised that Andrew Cohen actually chose the right reasons to be opposed to the death penalty, because you may very well be executing an innocent individual. No matter how certain those who convicted a murderer or a violent criminal, it is that very certainty that has been challenged over and over again when those previously convicted have been proven innocent. And then there's the issue of self-defense. While killing another individual is completely just and acceptable as an act of self-defense, you know, during the commission of the crime, the act of state execution is no longer an act of self-defense, but it's an act of punishment. A punishment that after being executed, pardon the pun, no longer serves as a lesson to the punished to be learned. I also think that red flag laws and collusion with the social media giants to enforce them is about as bad an idea as I've ever heard Trump suggest. A predictor of violence? Look at hate-mongering leader, wrote columnist Robin Baranyai in the August 10th London Free Press. Her regular hate Donald Trump columns that appear in the free press are among the worst of the worst, completely illogical and irrational, and ironically, even she has sensed that these red flag laws have something inherently wrong with them. But for all the wrong reasons, of course. Her conclusion, quote, the biggest predictor of violence is, quite simply, a leader who traffics in hate, end quote. Well, even if it were true that Trump traffics in hate, which it is not, her statement would still be false. You still can't predict who will be violent even if everybody's trafficking in hate. In Baranyai's column, she bemoans, quote, the birth of a platform designed for absolute freedom of speech, the long-abandoned ideal of an unregulated internet, and its inevitable descent into a haven for hate mongers and conspiracy theorists, end quote. When I read this, I realize that she's a pot calling the kettle black. She obviously supports the regulation of free expression on the internet as a means of controlling violence, which is the very thing she's criticizing Trump for. And as for Trump's comments regarding violent video games, comments you can hear from every political stripe, well, I'll let our next two audio bites address that issue. On this side of the bumper, Stephen Crowder's August 6th reaction to this suggestion, while on the return side, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever heard on how to personally deal with the issue of guns, as once again presented by the rageaholic Daniel Harris on August 9th. Do you blame this on video games? you think that's a problem? Do you think you, you blame it on, on background checks, on the background checks that we already have? Do you blame it on the NRA? I think there is a component to this, and we talked about this that changed my mind yesterday. People don't like to hear this. They say, well, how would you fix this problem? You know what? You can't. 
If people are being honest right now, you can't fix the problem. You can't fix the problem of evil. You can't. And it doesn't mean that you're being insensitive. It doesn't mean that you're not acknowledging what a horrible tragedy this is. It, it doesn't mean that you are not willing to call out evil for what it is. But you can't fix evil. You can't. And certainly, you don't, you don't knee-jerk react because people are saying you need to do something now and they push, push some legislation forward that would rob people of their basic right to self-preservation and wouldn't do a damn thing to curb the violence. Listen, we have over 300 million guns in America, okay? The vast majority of Americans are gun, uh, of gun-owning Americans are law-abiding citizens. Guns, firearms are used far more defensively than they are offensively in the United States. Even if you go to the, uh, I, don't know, I don't know, depending which, which statistics you use from the FBI or uh, CDC, 500,000 to 3 million defensive uses of firearms each year. You have countries with very stringent gun control that, that haven't necessarily curbed gun violence. We don't lead the world in gun violence. We don't lead the world in mass shootings. And we are very far from leading the world in violent crime. And y you know what else? You don't get rid of video games. And you don't make video games the boogeyman of the day. I don't know enough about video games today, but I do know that you're just like you're not going to strip citizens of firearms, you're not going to prevent criminals from obtaining firearms, you're not going to stop people from enjoying and engaging in one of the most profitable industries in the United States. And by the way, that's, that's not really a bad thing. When you compare it to drugs, when you compare it to alcohol, when you compare it to nearly any other industry of vice, I understand that some people have problems with video games. I understand that some video games are being marketed to kids when they shouldn't be played by kids. I understand that some people apparently can get addicted to video games. Maybe there's some truth to that. But it's one of the biggest industries we have. It's a, a wildly popular, um, exponentially growing sector of the, I don't know if people call it the entertainment industry, if it's just media or if it's tech. I don't necessarily know how you classify video games. Um, not only is it wrong to do, not only is it incorrect to do, and I mean that in both sense, both senses, it's, it's not only wrong in that it's incorrect, but it's also morally wrong to do, to blame video games. Um, it also is strategically a really stupid mistake. I think you lose a lot of people, a lot of new people who come into the fold because they're pro-free speech, because they're many of them pro-Second Amendment, um, because they don't like the authoritarian left. You know, they didn't leave the left, the left, left, uh, the left left them. The whole walk away movement. When you see a lot of these people now who are who are newer, who are into the fold, who are figuring out what they're about. Certainly, if you look at more young conservatives or libertarians or right leaners, guess what? A lot of them play video games. And right away, you lose a whole swath of the country. And so I really hope that President Donald Trump, and I really hope that all the other Republicans there in the, in the swamp right now, and it really was a swamp, gosh, my, my, I had to change shirts. I was a swamp when we were there, were there in D.C. yesterday. I hope that everybody in the swamp um, gets the right consultants. For some reason, they're playing by the old late 90s playbook where they want to blame... You know, they want to blame natural-born killers and, and Woody Harrelson and video games. And I, maybe they think it'll get the left off their, off their tail from claiming that they're paid, that they're bought and paid for by the NRA, which of course they aren't. If you look at the money that goes around from big unions or Planned Parenthood, it's not even comparable. The NRA is just this boogeyman that they're trying to scapegoat. So they try to scapegoat the NRA and firearm owners. I don't want to see people who should be supporting liberty and who should be supporting, you know, factual, cohesive arguments blaming video games and making them out to be the same boogeyman that the left tries to do with guns themselves. How about we stop blaming inanimate objects 
And we acknowledge that we don't necessarily have all the answers. We'll do what we can within reason as long as it doesn't infringe on people's rights. But we can't always necessarily fix evil. It's unpopular. It's the truth. for video games. Sure, media can influence your kid. Treat yourself to a 2015 high school yearbook if you don't believe me. Note the sea of haggard hipster beards and rubbing thick ponsador haircuts. Anyone who's with your child for any length of time can become an influence. But you know who's with them a lot more? You! If you've been training your tweens to kick babies and shoot up abortionariums from a young age, they'd be making paper mache IEDs before they finish their first SpongeBob marathon. Similarly, maybe if you didn't let ideologically informed public schools parent your kids, warning them of the perils of the evil sentient death rifles, they might not anthropomorphize them so much, and who knows? Perhaps they wouldn't see them as a social problem solver. So parents, on both coasts, I say do the opposite! Buy a gun, show them how to shoot, and more importantly, show them to respect the act of shooting. To do so competently, and to do so safely. Only one word roared through my cranium the first time I grasped a gun and prepared to pull the trigger. It wasn't power, it wasn't revenge, and it certainly wasn't, now I can be a Hitler. It was responsibility. I matured more in that moment and learned more about the world, society, and my obligation to both by pulling a trigger than I could have in 20 guns or evil lectures in my high school socialism studies class. It disabused me of misconceptions I may have harbored about firearm ownership and demystified both the act and the object with one pull of the trigger. And I want you to hear this and truly absorb it. What you demystify you disarm. What you demonize, you attract the impressionable to. That was quite brilliant, actually. Harris's comments reflect the world earlier described by Bill Whittle, a world 50 to 60 years ago in which guns were commonplace and were demystified. I mean, just, just think about the sense of false power that someone who illegally wields a gun has, knowing that everyone around him is disarmed and weaponless. That's a very unreal position to be in. And on the bigger issue of gun control, some closing observations and thoughts for you to consider. Now, I've listened to many, many differing commentaries on this issue and found myself in agreement with a lot of what was being said. Just because their perspectives on the issue were different didn't mean that they were in disagreement or being inconsistent with one another. For example, Stephen Crowder's view that you can't, quote, fix evil, end quote, in no way contradicts Daniel Harris's advice to parents that they should teach their kids to shoot a gun responsibly. Both views are valid. But then there's those nuances, and if you'll pardon the expression, those red flag issues and points raised. For example, Bill Whittle's concern that video game violence desensitizes people. Now, I've discovered that keeping people sensitive to many issues is a way of controlling them and intimidating them. And if anything, the whole issue of political correctness and gender identities and so many more are all about having to cater to sensitivities, most of which are irrational, including the idea of video game fictional depictions of violence and quit calling it violence as being a cause of anything. The failure to distinguish reality from fiction 
is a major shortcoming in this regard. I've argued in the past that we would all be better off if people actually were more desensitized to certain social phenomenon. I've seen more than enough evidence, particularly on college and university campuses, to demonstrate that it's the very sensitivity of people that makes them vulnerable and angry at the world, especially when they're sensitive to unrealities and forces that simply do not exist. And then there's another philosophical principle that was touched on by Stephen Crowder's argument that you can't fix evil, especially in advance of a given evil act. You cannot prevent anything from happening unless you are God the Omnipotent. To say you've prevented an action, you have to have absolute knowledge of the future and that you actually did prevent something that would otherwise have happened. One can reduce risk or increase caution and safety to a point, but that point is the line you cross when you violate the rights of others. As soon as you do that, you're past that point. Another related issue that we could have devoted an entire show to is the failure to recognize the ideologue versus the mentally ill when it comes to these mass shooters. Blaming mental illness for all mass shootings, I think, is an error. If you want to get a real haunting insight into the mind of an ideologue, just watch Carl Benjamin, Sargon of Akkad, just watch his August 3rd presentation, The Validity of Nazi Comparisons Feet, and consider the state of mind of the people who managed Auschwitz during World War II who were shown in that presentation. They were committing some of the worst atrocities ever committed in human history and thought nothing of it. To them, it was the moral and right thing to do, and they were not mentally ill in any detectable sense of that word. And finally, let me be clear that the right to own guns is fundamentally about self-defense, not about sports or recreational use only. To fail to make this distinction the root of any argument against arbitrary gun control is to lose the debate right from the outset. So the bottom line question to always ask in any gun control debate is the one I'll leave you to consider as we wrap up our show today, and that is this. Who controls the gun controllers? Think about that one for a while. But don't forget to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Will Mr. Sloan present the first case, please? Thank you, Your Honor. One Archibald Bunker is charged with violating the administrative code of the city of New York by possessing a tear gas weapon. Is Archibald Bunker in the courtroom? Yeah, I'm over here, Mrs. Judge. What do you plead? Uh, guilty with an explanation. What is the explanation? I ain't guilty. <laughs> you can't plead guilty and not guilty. It must be one or the other. You see, uh, us cabbies, uh, we, we got to defend ourselves somehow, you know? And these muggers, they carry knives. I mean, they don't fight according to the rules of Marcus Pillsbury, you know? <laughs> Stab you. Look at the dick this guy gave me. And he could cut me in worse places, you know? I mean, a cabbie could wind up the night shift singing soprano. <laughs> Your Honor, this is merely an arraignment to set the date for trial. Mr. Bunker is already pleading his case. You have an attorney. He seems to be defending himself, Your Honor. Like I was defending myself with my cat. Now, you must plead guilty or innocent. And I'll set a date for trial. 
And Mr. Bunker, I suggest you hire a lawyer. Yeah, but Judge, what do I need a lawyer for? I don't even know why I'm in court, just because I squirted tear gas at a mug. You mean you actually use that weapon? Oh, damn right. Archie! <laughs> you were only charged with possession. This is a new ball game, Your Honor. Using a dangerous weapon is assault. That's a felon. Wait a minute. Uh... With a possible penalty of seven years in prison. Seven years? Seven years? Seven years? You hear? Seven years for self-defending myself against a criminal? Now, I have no sympathy for criminals, Mr. Bunker. But the law is the law, and it applies to both of you. Yeah, yeah, but Mr. Judge, you got a criminal running around on a loose there with me. I'm a law-abiding citizen, and I'm up the creek in a boat with a hole. 